gunfire in the streets of Kabul after a protest led by women angry over the Taliban rule in Afghanistan. One protest from delivering news of chaos in Kabul to serving as debate moderator, firing away questions to those who want to be the next president of the United States. Mayor Buttigieg, you've been struggling with issues around race in your own community. You've also said that anyone who votes to reelect President Trump is at best looking the other way on racism. Does that sort of talk alienate voters and potentially deepen divisions in our country? Also a concern for people of color is criminal justice reform. Senator Harris, you released your plan for that just this week, and it does contradict some of your prior positions. Vice President Biden, you have a plan to release many nonviolent drug offenders from prison. Senator Booker says that your plan is not ambitious enough. Your response. ABC News anchor Lindsey Davis experienced a lot as a Hoosier before moving on to the national anchor desk. Federal raid, a local man back taxes, and the federal investigation. Plus, remembering the life of actor Don Knotts. From Indiana's news leader, this is Channel 13 Eyewitness News at 6 o'clock. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. I'm Lindsay Davis. Late word this evening. Four years at WTHR in Indianapolis, covering everything from Hurricane Katrina to two Olympic Games. A conversation with ABC News anchor, reporter, best-selling author, and a one-time force on the lacrosse field, Lindsay Davis why she still considers Indiana home, life as a network anchor, and what's next on this edition of the Business and Beyond podcast. Hello and welcome to the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. I'm Gary Dick. Hoosier news junkies should remember the name Lindsay Davis. Before she hit the big time at ABC, Lindsay spent four years as a reporter anchor at WTHR in Indianapolis. Still considers Indy home. She got the call from ABC in 2007 to join the network as a correspondent which led to her serving as anchor for ABC's News Live Prime, the network's first ever streaming evening newscast. Not only that, but millions of viewers also watch Lindsay every Sunday, anchoring ABC World News tonight. And I'm pleased to be joined by Lindsay Davis from ABC News in New York City. She uh, certainly, I would describe Lindsay you as not a rising star. You've arrived. It's been really fun for me to watch from Indianapolis, your your growth and your ascension at the network. How are you? I am great, Gary. It's good to to be with you and, and miss my Hoosier friends. Uh, love to get back to Indianapolis whenever I can. Yeah, many people know you, see you certainly on the network now. Some certainly would remember you from Indianapolis, but you do have those Indianapolis roots or Indianapolis connections, uh, having worked here as a reporter and anchor at WTHR, the NBC station here. What uh, what do you remember about your your time in Indianapolis? I, you know, I really loved uh, the people there. I wasn't married. I didn't have a son yet. And so I really spent a lot of time with the, my colleagues at, at WTHR. And, and it was the first time because I 
moved so much after college. I spent a year in Syracuse. I spent a, a year and a half in Flint, Michigan. But Indiana, I was there for almost five years. So it was the first time I really kind of got to plant some roots and and make some friends who are now lifelong friends. And and so there was just a before I went there, somebody had described Indianapolis as a a, a big town and a small city. And, and that really was the best description for it. You know, it, it was like you you got to know people in a in a way that really in a big city, it's just you're more anonymous. And and yeah. so I I really miss that. But it, but that was the the thing I loved about Indianapolis. It, it felt like and it still does feel like home. Yeah, that's great. You covered a lot of big stories while you were here. Hurricane Katrina, the uh, 2006 Winter Olympics, uh, among others. Were there any stories uh, or experiences here that really, really stand out that you really remember? Yeah, I mean, Katrina was one of them. That I remember driving with John Capodimos, who was a photographer. We we drove and slept in the the truck and, you know, ate granola cars through that um, <laughs> ordeal. And um I think it was it was may have been uh, the Doctors Without Borders that we followed uh, some doctors from from Indianapolis there who were who were treating some of the victims from that. But it really did some great uh, just slice of life pieces with Steve Rhodes as well, um, who was a photographer there and still is. I'm I'm trying to remember some in particular. I had a, a few people who have tell, told me about like great zinger lines and stuff that that was the. The place that I I felt like I was able to really write um, yeah. and really take the time that, you know, once I got to the network, it was very like slam, bam, you know, you got a, like a slot, you got to fill it. And when I when I think about Indiana, I've, I've told people, you know, here at the network, even that, that my best stories um, I did when I was in Indianapolis, in particular, covering some of those Olympics and, and really, you know, writing about like the history of the marathon or yeah, the, the in Verona, the balcony, because one of the, the Winter Olympics was held in Verona, Italy. And that's mm-hmm. where the Romeo and Juliet uh, supposedly was was birthed in Verona, Italy. And we did a story about that and, and really just kind of took some time to to marry the the words and video and, and use of natural sound and really just some good old fashioned storytelling. Yeah. Teresa Wells Ditton uh, was a producer, a key producer of Channel 13 back then. And interestingly enough, executive producer on this podcast yes. and also very involved in our TV show as well. She told me that that you also really pushed hard to do a story about cochlear implants yes. allowing children to hear. And, and and that struck me too, based on a little bit of research I've done, that you strike me as someone who's you know passionate about what you do and wants your reporting, your storytelling to make a difference. Was that I assume that was the case in that in that particular story. 100%. I remember there was a little girl who was getting that cochlear implant and we were there when she was hearing for the first time. And, you know, she may have been two or three years old by that point. But so can you just imagine if you waited for, for years at that point to something that we all take for granted, just hearing the, the sounds that are all around us or hearing your mother's voice, you know, that that she was a, a toddler by that point and And hearing her mom's voice for the first time that was uh really a sentimental one that 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 does stay with me uh, i'm also remembering the town that time forgot which was a, a town that i don't know if it still exists in this way but it was half uh they called it fast time and slow time it was like the line the the time zone went right through the middle of the town and so was it between on- between on the ohio was it on the ohio indiana border Yes, 
<laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And it was funny. They were telling a story in our piece about how there were some bank robbers that uh, their their whole plot was thwarted because they got to the bank in the wrong time. And so the bank had actually already closed, but they were on the the the, the wrong time zone. And so it was just it was really funny about how people who lived in this town straddled, you know, the, the different times and uh, just some really just classic yeah. uh, pieces that we did. Now you are so busy and and you have so many uh, responsibilities. So you are ABC News live prime anchor, which is the network streaming uh, newscast, World News Tonight weekend anchor. You file reports across the platform from World News Tonight to Good Morning America to Nightline. Do you have a typical day or week, or what's what's your week like uh, typically as you as as you uh, go through the process? Well, typically, uh, my days off are Friday, Saturday. Now that is not you know etched in stone, but in an ideal world, those are the days. Uh, that I'm off. So my work week really begins Sunday mornings. I, it starts out with a call uh, with our executive producer of World News Tonight Sunday. And uh, we kind of talk about what we're thinking are the big stories that day and the order that they are going to go, who's going to be assigned and what manner we're going to tell them. Is this going to be a full on piece? Is this just going to be what we call a tell, which is just kind of like a video. And we're just I'm just talking over the video. And then that changes over the course of the day as, you know, breaking news happens. But then I I go into the office uh, around noon, go through hair and makeup and then, you know, get a chance to read through all the scripts and read through all of uh, the aspects of the broadcast that I'm going to be anchoring. And uh, then I I stay in the building till about eight o'clock at night. Then uh, Monday morning, my son is normally asleep by the time I get home on Sunday night. So so breakfast time in, in our house is kind of the the big meal and bonding family time of the day because I'm able to to be there for breakfast, uh, take my son to school and really kind of spend some time, you know, nagging him if he bought extra snacks and drinks at lunch that he wasn't supposed to do and, and kind of catch up with him. And then I, I tend to go in around noon um, to work and then uh, Monday through Thursday, I'm I'm here pretty much uh, noon until nine, but we have a call similarly at, at 1230 every day for my streaming show, ABC News Live Prime, um, where we talk about, you know, the day stories and that, and how we see that running uh, in the rundown. But the difference there is that our streaming show is an hour and a half. So it's a 90 minute broadcast oh, wow. every day. Yeah. And uh, on World News Tonight, it's just 30 minutes. And so by the time you have commercials and everything, I mean, really just talking about maybe 22 minutes that we're actually on here. And so it's a lot more uh, time that we have to feel, fill. So on the streaming broadcast, it's really, uh, we like to describe it as like the humanity behind the headlines. So we really get to delve in and, and kind of uh, put the, the nuggets and the nuance that you wouldn't necessarily see in just a, a 30 minute um, news broadcast. So we're able to kind of have the, the context, the analysis of whatever the, the day's top headlines are. You have covered uh, a lot of, of newsmakers from Hillary Clinton to Bill uh, Bill Gates, Anthony Fauci. You also moderated um, the ABC News Democratic presidential debates in 2019. Think of that experience because I look at, as a reporter and live reporting, I always think it's good to have an, an edge or a little, I don't want to say nerves, but but you know, be uh, be really especially ready for it. What was that experience? I've always wondered. You know, I've done debates here on the state level, but to do a presidential level debate 
with so much attention on it, social media, you know, everything that that is out there today, what was that experience like for you? So, Gary, I don't know that I ever had anxiety in my life until I, <laughs> I first learned that I was going to be doing that. So it was like the months lead up to it. I would think about it and my heart would just start, you know, to to palpitate a little bit. And uh, it was I, I, I prepared for it like I never prepared for anything else. The first one that I did was in September. And so I always take vacation time leading into Labor Day. And so my vacation, I was on the beach with two, three ring binders, thick, huge <laughs> binders yeah. of research on every candidate. And at the time, uh, there were maybe 10 Democratic candidates. So, I mean, you know, wow. you had to know where they each stood on all the major, you know, on immigration or gun control or, you know, uh, the economy, whatever it might be, you know, what they've said in the past, you know, their stance, you know, uh, the arguments that they've made. And it was just uh, a lot. And then the, the things, the thing about the debates too, that's interesting. You can be so locked in on, you know, what you think the storylines are going to be. And then, you know, one week or a few days right before the debate, it's like, nope, this is actually the direction. And this it is changes. what's most yeah, important. Right. right. So even all that research that you've done, you know, it, it becomes like, a you know, it's always relevant, but it's not necessarily the, the main talking point anymore. And so it was it was a lot. But I have to say the day before we did a run through, I was with George Stephanopoulos, who was just as just old hat for him. I mean, George could wake up tomorrow and <laughs> conduct, you know, the debate. He's just he's ready. And and David Muir was on the other side and, and David as well. He's done a few of these at this point now. And and he's coming prepared. You know, he's going to be locked and loaded. And so. Uh, but the 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 day before we did a rehearsal and I, I felt some kind of security kind of, you know, being in between the two of them. And I just I knew I was prepared. And so I think that there is some some confidence and some easing of the nerves that comes with just knowing that, that you know, OK, you know your stuff and now let's just go with it. Right. Yeah. And then I, I actually got to the point where I was able to, you know, really have a little fun with it at, at a certain point and just, yeah. you know, relax and 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 trust trust that it was going to yeah. be okay. Yeah. What, what is your take, uh, Lindsay on, on the state of, of, well, let's say television news in general, but television news, certainly journalism continues to be in many respects under attack in various circles. We got the social media aspect and how that plays into this and, and back and forth. What would, what, what is your take on the state of, uh, of journalism in particular television news today? Yeah. So three years ago, I think I would have given you a different answer. And and I was kind of buying into the idea that maybe TV news is dying along with maybe newspapers and that kind of thing. But what we realized during COVID, especially during the peak of COVID, ABC World News Tonight with David Muir was the most watched show on TV, period. It wasn't even just of news. It was across the board. And so when people felt like, and this is like the the, the quintessential uh, question, I remember when I was at J school and, and our professor said, people turn on the news to know, is my world safe? And I think that that was a, a time really, perhaps in, in my lifetime, the, the real time when people didn't know if their world was safe and they they needed to be informed and they they felt they needed to tune in to their evening news in order to get the most relatable, reliable, up-to-date information. 
So whether you have people saying, you know, it's fake news, you can't trust it, whatever it was, people were tuning in. And so I do think that that uh, served to, to reinstill my faith that, uh, you know, people can can count us out and, and say that, you know, it's it's dying industry. I think it is transforming. I think that it's taking a new shape and, and it'll continue to do that. You know, some people will suggest that uh, that streaming is is starting to do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's yeah. it's almost like, you know, you have this totally new um, territory, this this real estate that um, is so expansive. Right. You know, uh, with with the linear TV on on network news, there is this just very small amount. But with streaming, you know, that that does have the ability to, to really change. Uh, you know how we uh, get our news and, and really put it on its on its head, but but I think that in its various forms, uh, news in different models will will stand the test of time, and and COVID proved that to us. Yeah. Well, what what's your take on social media? Do you, are you a big social media person? It, it's out there for good or for bad, and I think there's both <laughs> personal opinion. But your your take on on social media and the impact, especially as it relates to to news and content. You know, I think like anything else, it's a blessing and a curse. Uh, you know, social media has the benefit of being fast, but I think that it, the downfall is that because it's so fast, it's not always accurate. But people will, even though they might go back and make that change and and edit, you know, to to update the information. A lot of times, people they've seen that headline, you can't unring that bell. Right, they, right. They don't necessarily see that that news was updated or changed, and. And so like anything else, uh, I mean, I guess I would equate it to to tabloids in some scenarios, right? Sometimes the tabloids break the news and they have the lead story and it's, yeah. it's true. And then sometimes it's completely made up and it's it's totally false. So I tend to not be that active on social media. I think that that's a downfall of mine. I think that that is something that I, I really should get better at because I do want to meet uh, people where they are. And we know that people are getting so much of their news, consuming so much of their news from their phones and not necessarily as as much as like my parents' generation, for example, when the family would sit down every night together and watch the evening news, um, you know, people are getting those constant updates throughout the day as they're, you know, getting to their car, walk, getting their, you know, kids together for school, whatever the scenario might be. People are 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 always consuming news. And so I do think that it's important that we we meet them where they are. And, you know, even with TikTok or uh, Instagram, I think that it is important for the the younger generations to to have accurate and, and up-to-date news that, that they can trust. Talking with Lindsay Davis, ABC News reporter and anchor. And uh, she's not only an Emmy award-winning journalist, she is an author, a very successful author. We'll get into that and a lot more when the Business and Beyond podcast returns. At PNC Bank, we're committed to making a difference in the lives of our customers and communities by helping them move forward financially. As a Main Street bank, we try to do right by our customers with every encounter. Our local teams offer personalized financial advice to help guide you in making the best decision. We're proud to be part of your community. PNC Bank. See how we can make a difference for you at PNC.com. Copyright 2022, the PNC Financial Services Group, Inc. All rights reserved. 
Welcome back to the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. My guest this week, ABC News anchor and reporter Lindsay Davis. She's got a, a real connection to Indiana, formerly working at Channel 13, the NBC station right here in Indianapolis. And Lindsay, we've talked a lot about your career, your uh, exciting career at ABC News and the broadcast journalism side of things. But as if you need one more thing to do and to keep you busy, uh, you're an author. And uh, yeah. your fifth book, and they're all children's books, right? Uh, yeah. uh, just yeah. just came out. The smallest spot of the dot, the little ways that were different, the big ways were the same. Um, this really came out of a, a fascination that I've had for a while now with the Human Genome Project, which the first oh. phase of it, it was 13 years, thousands of researchers around the world, and they set out to map. Uh, the DNA of of human beings and really kind of find that that blueprint. And uh, what they found, which I find astounding, uh, is that 99.9% of our DNA is alike. It's just that 0.1% that makes us different. And uh, I was talking to a friend of mine saying that that would make a really great book. It's just a matter of how we could explain it in a way that children could understand, right? And so as we were looking at it more and more, it was the idea is that, you know, the, the human DNA is made up of about 3.1 billion molecules. And so uh, my friend suggested you could make it spots, like little dots, you know, that, that kids would understand. And so really the book is each little child has a physical dot. We call it our me, my, mind dot, or one of a kind dot, our thing that's that make me shine dot. And so you know, it's like you could put a dot on a page and that's actually how the book begins. Just it's a white page with a black spot. You know, you can have people who see the white page and focus on that or chances are most people are going to focus in on the black spot in the middle of the white page, even though it takes up just a, a small little amount. And so we're really looking at both. We're really celebrating and embracing diversity. And at the same time that we're all the same, right? We're all one human family. And um, I started writing children's books because I have a son who's uh, going to be nine in March. And as he was growing up, I felt like it was just a more diver divisive world than when I grew up. You know, I mean, I think that, you know, uh, certainly we have always been aware of our, our differences between you know races or religions or whatever it might be. But maybe it was more covert when I was growing up. I don't know. But it just feels like now people are kind of like on a megaphone you know, right. kind of pushing people into different corners and and based on, you know, your skin color or what you believe um, or where you're from or your socioeconomic. I mean, there's so many ways that we just spend time dividing us. And um, so this was just like I felt like this would help people to understand with a scientific basis that that that's all, you know, to use a Joe Biden word malarkey, you know, <laughs> And uh, and I want kids to I think the kids actually do understand that. I think the idea of othering people comes as you get older. Uh, but I really want to just kind of reinforce and, and instill in kids this idea that, that that we really have so much in common mm -hmm. and 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 embrace and celebrate the differences that we have as well. As mentioned, this this latest book, your fifth. So going back to that, and I think you kind of just touched on that, but your son, Aiden, really was the inspiration for you to start writing, right? Start yes. writing these children. Yes, books. I mean, I, I would say he's my muse, really. And um, when I was reading books to him as an infant, I started thinking, you know, I, I'm really kind of a storyteller as it is with the news every day. Um, but quite often I'm talking about death and destruction, you know, missing, murdered, mayhem. 
And this would be a, a nice way to, to tell the good news and, and, mm -hmm. and talk about some pleasant things. And, but I didn't know what I wanted to write about. So I knew I wanted to write a children's book, but I wasn't sure what the topic would be. And one day, shortly after, he had just started really kind of putting words into sentences. And he was, we were driving, he was in the backseat and he said, mommy, does, does God open the flowers? And I thought, wow, what a deep question. So that really stayed with me. And then I just decided, you know, let me really kind of um, talk about my first book was about the, the creations that are all around us and, and us as, as God's creation. And, uh, and looking at that through the eyes of a child, you know, um, so much I would think about when it was snowing uh, and, and I might be about to leave for work and I'd think, oh gosh, it's going to be a slow commute or it's going to be messy on the roads or whatever the scenario may be. Meanwhile, my son would be holding his little mitten out and looking at the snowflake, like so <laughs> excited, you know, or he'd see a butterfly and be so excited. And I started thinking about that as a new mom that, I needed to really look at the world through the eyes of a child because there's so much joy. The things that we just see is ho-hum. We don't really, you know, get so excited about, you know, seeing a sunset or really pay attention to it. And and so it ultimately would be different um, scenarios that he would be talking to me about that I would say, you know, I ought to write a book about that. It just, you know, one other example, he'd come home uh, from nursery school one day and he said, how come Santino has two grandmas and two grandpas and I only have one of each? Uh, my my parents uh, par parents had both passed away before he could remember them, and so he he started saying, "Well, you know, I was explaining that to him, and he said, well, where did they go?'" And I said, "Well, they're in heaven." He said, "Well, I want to go see them," and I thought he meant, "I want to see a picture." So I started bringing out pictures and photo albums of them, and they said, "No, I want to go to heaven and see them," uh -huh. you know. And so uh -huh. so that sparked another book, "How High Is Heaven," and that you know we just had some some fun, just kind of listening and being present yeah. in my son's life to say, oh, what's my next book about? That's neat. And I, I know you you also want to, these books to serve as an inspiration to young readers, in particular, young readers of color. Yes. Uh, you know, initially, and I would say that this over the, the course of uh, the nearly decade now that I've been doing this, it's gotten better. It's really improved because there's a lot more diversity but I remember the numbers when I was like putting on my my reporter hat and, and did the research. It was like in the 90s that the statistics were that, uh, you know, while uh, more than 90 percent of the protagonists in children's books were white. You, you look at the U.S. Census Bureau, more than half of the kids in our country are kids of color. And so there was this major discrepancy there. And for me, for my son, I wanted him to look at books and be able to see himself. You know, there was an essay that I read early on when I first started writing the books. It talked about uh, mirrors, windows, and sliding glass doors. And it said that the importance of every children's book, they need to have a mirror so kids can see themselves reflected in the books. They need to have a window so kids can peer into a world that's unfamiliar to their own. And if that window is really successful, it's able to serve as a sliding glass door to essentially transport them into that world. And that if kids don't see themselves when they look at books, they're going to start looking elsewhere. And that's of course, not what you want. You want kids to 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 have that enthusiasm and interest in in reading. And so this, because I was only seeing, you know, during Black History Month, often, you know, the the book, the circle of books of tables in the entryway of the bookstores of books uh, with children of color. Um, I started feeling like, you know, rather than me complain, let me be a part of of the solution. And and what we have seen is uh, post uh, George Floyd is that publishers are really starting to get hip to this that and parents, you know, um, 
I remember there were all these chat boards uh, of of white parents, primarily white parents, who were saying, you know, we want to introduce our kids to books with kids of color too, because you know, quite often it's what you're not familiar with that you fear, right? And so when you look at people who may live in a community that's not diverse, or maybe their kids don't go to a play- diverse school or or place of worship, but you can start with toys, right? You can start with with books and introducing kids to to people who may look a little different, and so they. They don't find uh, people who are different from them as so foreign, right? Because they've already had that exposure early on in their books. Yeah, yeah. Lindsay mentioned your connection to Indianapolis, but you're uh, you grew up in New Jersey, right? Uh, from South Jersey, right outside of Philadelphia. Talk about what was growing up uh, like for Lindsay Davis. So I went to a friend's school, which, uh, if you guys are not familiar in Indiana, because. Uh, uh, it was really actually kind of started initially in in Pennsylvania in the Philadelphia area and kind of spread out mostly on the the northeast corridor. Uh, so it's Quakers uh, founded the the Friends schools. I'm not a Quaker, but uh, grew up having meeting for worship, which every Wednesday we went uh, and sat in uh, basically a very uh, plain church, uh, just kind of a building with pews in it. And the idea of, of Quakerism is that the divine spark is in all of us, so that that of God is is in all of us. And so we don't need a preacher uh, that basically all of us can uh, just listen to God within us. And and so people would just kind of stand up from time to time and kind of say just whatever was on their heart. It was actually a really great way. I didn't realize it at the time. At the time, meeting of worship, I was like, oh, gosh, you know, I got to like sit through this. Right, right. Uh, but, but looking back, I mean, as they say, youth is wasted on the young, right? Because now well, I when I look back, I, I see the value of having that enrichment in, in my life as an early uh, an early part of my my uh, childhood. And so I have an older sister; she's six years older. Parents, uh, we we pretty much uh, from middle school. I was in another town called Medford, then Moorestown, uh, right outside of of Philadelphia. I grew up, you know, really uh, for the most part. Uh, people say you don't make it out of childhood unscathed. I don't know. I. I looking back, I you know I'm sure at the time I had my grumbles, uh, but but I, I feel like it was a pretty idyllic childhood, and uh, still have some some lifelong friends from from South Jersey, and um and and still go. My sister still lives there, and and her kids are in the area, and I I still get back there uh, you know, quite often. So it's kind of like my two homes, uh, Indiana and yeah. Jersey. Yeah. So and you were a lacrosse player. So I did, as as Teresa Ditton, uh, your <laughs> colleague and my former colleague, will will let you know. Yes, I did. I played tennis and lacrosse. Um, also, as I was president of the outdoor club, so we'd go, we'd have some ski trips and and snow tubing and all that. And uh, but yes, um, I, I did play lacrosse, which Teresa always got a big kick out of. <laughs> I love it. And you remain athletic today because, uh, as we were talking before we started the. The podcast. You and your husband are you're on a, a mission, right, to do a half marathon in every state in the union. That is quite ambitious. Yes, you know my first half marathon I ever ran, the mini marathon in Indianapolis. Absolutely, I ran that a few times. I think WTHR was the sponsor at the time, yeah. at least, and uh, I ran that a few times. And Mary Mills, who had run a few marathons, she kept saying, you know, one day you'll get. So I did. When ultimately, when I ran, uh, went to New York ran the New York Marathon in 2008, but my husband's a big runner. And that's actually how we met. He knew my cousin and my cousin said to him, you know, what are you looking for in a, in a woman? And and he just said, somebody who likes to run. He said the bar really high. <laughs> and that was the moment that she thought of me because that's one thing I can do is run. And uh, 
So on our second date, we ran together and, and we we're running ever since. Uh, I think we've just done our our 37th state and uh, we're about to do Atlanta in February and uh, trying to knock them out within the next two years, all 50. That's outstanding. Um, very busy. Now, Lindsay, what's what's next for Lindsay Davis? I mean, I, you, you, you know, many times you get so busy doing things, you really don't have time to to look out at what's next. But as you look at that next adventure or that next challenge, any given any thought to what uh, what might be out there? You know, it's interesting, Gary. I have always been somebody who's set, you know, um, I've had a, a goal in front of me and really had all these benchmarks in my life. I remember when I was uh, first starting out in the career, I said, by the time I'm 25, I want to be in a top 25 market. Uh, by the time I'm 30, I want to get to the network. And, uh, you know, I, I met all of those and, and ultimately you know, got married and wanted to have a child and, and have done all that. And now for the first time in my life, uh, you know, I'm 45 years old. I'm kind of like at that, uh, you know, maybe the prime uh, of my life, that kind of sweet spot. And I, for the first time, I don't know what's next. And it's contrary to the way I've lived my whole life, but in a way it's freeing. Um, and it's exciting. I know I still have more to do and I'm looking forward to the future, but I just, I, I can't say just yet. I don't, I don't have that charted out um, just yet what the next thing is. So we'll see. <laughs> Stay tuned, as they say, yes. right? Stand by for news. There <laughs> you go. Lindsay Davis, it's been a real treat to catch up with you. Really appreciate it. Uh, very happy for your continued success. I'm not uh, surprised in, in the least that you continue to do great things. And I know whatever that is coming up next, it'll be great as well. Thanks for joining us. Gary, thank you so much for having me. You bet. And thank you for joining us on this episode of the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. It's a weekly conversation with achievers in business, sports, entertainment, and beyond. And you can download all of our episodes and get Indiana Business News 24-7 at InsideIndianaBusiness.com. Thanks for joining us. I'm Gary Dick. We'll see you next time.